Welcome to the Aspen Chapel podcast with me, Nicholas Feasy. Well, this is the fourth in a series that I'm doing uh, in Lent. And in the first, we just uh, remind ourselves that Jesus, on his journey to Jerusalem, knew that he was going to die. And that by remaining centered on that divine within himself, rather than trying to control events around him, he was able to remain focused on the purpose that he was doing while, while still knowing what was going to happen. We spoke about the need to keep our hearts full and not be distracted by what our mind makes us think. Worries about what other people think of us, what might happen to us and about what, what we ought to do. When we're focused on filling the capacity of our hearts with the love that we have within us, then we remain on that even keel and we're not distracted. We looked at the main thing that distracts us from focusing on our hearts is fear. And the mind uses our fear uh, to drive us into acting. However, those actions might necessarily be to our best interests. Our mind becomes focused on fear, looking how we can avoid it. And we looked at how fear is driving much of what's going on in the world at the moment. Putin's fear of losing his position. Ukraine, the fear going on there, the fear in the refugees. All the leaders around the situation being afraid of not being able to respond. And we looked at the idea that if we're willing to have our fear, then wisdom arises. The space of having our fear is often the portal to wisdom and that peace that passes all understanding. And last week we looked at the idea that when we feel fearful and helpless, the thing to focus on is the service that we can do to others. That service is actually, service is the end point of spirituality. It's the goal of everything we do. And when we serve, we put our attention outside ourselves and go beyond the negative emotions that we're experiencing. So that's where we came up to. And then I was very struck by something that Thich Nhat Hanh said. He said, I've heard some people predict that the 21st century will be the century of spirituality. He says, personally, I think it must be the center of spirituality if we're going to survive at all. In our society, there's so much suffering, violence, despair, and confusion. There is so much fear. How can we survive without spirituality? And really, I think we have to take that seriously. You know, how else are we going to go go beyond the warring nature of humanity that seems to have been so prevalent over the last millennia? And, you know, as you look back on all the different centuries, you can see the different emphasis that each of those centuries have had. The, the 18th century was really the century, century of reason, science, and it's known as the Enlightenment. It's when we began to actually see things as they really are. That, that was this, the, the, the 18th century. The 19th century was the century, really, of industrialization. Um, everything geared up industrially during that century. I think the last century was the century of mass communication. That's really television, 
Global Village, you know, even radio at the beginning. I mean, that was a huge breakthrough when people began speaking on a mass level. And then we had the internet and things like that. And I think the next logical step of evolution of both humanity and everything else and, and consciousness, I think has to be spirituality being the next one. I've always said that the, the next step of the evolution of humanity will not be extending a thumb for easier texting, uh, but will be a step in the direction of the evolution of consciousness. And that step will surely be one about self-realization. The last Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, described spirituality as the cultivation of a sensitive and rewarding relationship with eternal truth and love. And I think that's just so great. He said it's the cultivation of a sensitive spirituality. It's all a bit sort of iffy and out there, but if you nail it down, spirituality, the cultivation of a sensitive and rewarding relationship with eternal truth and love. And I, I like that for a number of reasons. It talks about cultivation, first of all. One of the centuries, probably the 17th century, was defined as by the agrarian revolution. 17th century was the agrarian revolution. And that's where agriculture moved into the mass cultivation phase. Previously, we were hunter-gatherers or scrub farmers. And then we began to seriously cultivate the land to feed us in the 17th century. And in many ways, we've been hunter-gatherers and scrub farmers over the years in terms of spirituality. You know, we found spirituality where we were able. We captured it or we were captured by it in that we joined great groupings who told us how to think. There were, you know, there's warring tribes in spirituality. It's a whole medieval thing of people fighting each other like that. The cultivation of spirituality, I think it is, is growing it within ourselves. Like agriculture, when we grow it in ourselves, you've got to prepare the land. You know, we have to prepare our hearts for the seeds that will be sown there and the seeds that, that we will sow in turn. We have to develop a practice. We have to quieten the stormy weather of our minds so that the seeds of wisdom can actually enter into our hearts. And then we have to bring those seeds of wisdom into the world so that they can bear fruit. So, and you, you have the whole stuff about Jesus, you know, the parable of the sower and all that sort of business. I mean, there is an agrarian uh, theme to spirituality. Cultivation is important. And I think, you know, it's a very modern, and also this idea of cultivating it within yourself, it's a very revolutionary thing, given the warring tribes that have captured us or been captured by us. To say that you are the authority of your own spirituality is a very revolutionary thing. People got hung for that. They got drawn and quartered and burnt and you know, all that sort of business. And, and now we have the freedom to be able to say, you know, we have the freedom at the chapel to be a non-denominational church. Well, we don't, we're not, you know, people don't come up to you afterwards and say, you only mentioned Jesus once in the service, which I have had people say that to me. You know, we can say what we want here. 
And I think it is revolutionary, which is why Rowan Williams, it's a Rowan Williams Sunday today, what he said about meditation, and meditation, you know, is, is, and contemplation is the cultiv- is, is what you use to cultivate within you. He said, to put it boldly, meditation is the only ultimate answer to the unreal and insane world that our financial systems and our advertising culture and our chaotic and unexamined emotions encourage us to inhabit. It's the, it's the only answer to that unreal world of the mind. To learn meditative practice is to learn what we need to live so we can live truthfully, honestly, and lovingly. It is a deeply revolutionary matter. It is cultivating our own soil, which is a very different approach to nearly all the great religions with their dogmas and their rituals and their warring cultures. This is personal, the cultivation of our hearts so that we can individually bring forth fruit of our own personal unique wisdom into our own personal and unique lives. So spirituality is the cultivation of a sensitive and rewarding relationship with eternal truth and love. So it's sensitive because spirituality should not be abusive. It involves empathy. And I just want to remind you of that quote last week from Thich Nhat Hanh, which I so love, so I, I'm going to shamelessly repeat it again. He was talking about empathy. And he said, uh, when, you plant a le- let- when you plant a lettuce, if it doesn't grow, you don't blame the lettuce. You look for reasons that it's not doing well. Maybe it needs fertilizer or more water or less sun, but you don't blame the lettuce. Yeah, if we have problems with our friends or family or neighbours or nations, we blame the other person. But if we know how to take care of them and grow them well, like a lettuce, you know, we can cultivate them. Blaming has no positive effect at all, nor does trying to persuade using reason or argument. Take that hand says, that's my experience. No blame, no reasoning, no argument Just understanding. If you understand and you show you understand, you can love and the situation will change. That's the empathy that's needed, the understanding, the sensitivity not to blame. So spirituality, it needs that sensitivity and that involves a humility of understanding and rewarding. It's the cultivation of sensitive and rewarding relationship. Spirituality enriches us. It makes us wealthy. Not in the prosperity gospel saying, if you follow me, you'll get a million dollars in your hedge fund or whatever it is. My favorite definition of wealth is the ability to appreciate experience. I like that. Wealth is the ability to appreciate experience. Spirituality gives us the ability to appreciate our lives. A sensitive and rewarding, and then the key word, relationship. Spirituality is not a thing. Spirituality is a relationship. 
Someone once described, you know, getting on to Christian stuff here, someone once described the Trinity, you know, Trinity is a big Christian thing, the Trinity as three parts of the Godhead in an erotic relationship with each other. The, Godhead, the Trinity is, is three parts of the Godhead in erotic relationship with in erotic relationship with each other. Now, erotic here means desirous. That's really what erotic means. It means desirous. The three parts of the Godhead are desirous of each other. And I think our relationship with spirituality is the same. There is our inner world and our outer world. The, the Trinity in, our, in the spirituality is our inner world and our outer world, and the ground of being that contains it all, the consciousness, the ground of being that contains it all. Three parts, all desirous of each other. The ground of being, the consciousness that contains it all, desires the inner and the outer worlds to move towards completion. There's, there's a drawing from the ground of being of the inner and the outer world towards a completion. And that completion is what traditionally is called the second coming. The second coming is really where all consciousness becomes aware of itself as being part of the divine. That we all look out at each other and know that we all come from the same consciousness. The ground of being is always drawing us towards that completion and perfection. In fact, the process of the ground of being, drawing everything towards itself, is the driver for all evolution. And it operates, that drawing, through the evolution of consciousness, which in turn enables us to experience material evolution. So the evolution of consciousness enables us to experience material evolution. So the ground of being is desiring the inner and the outer. And the inner... Our inner life is always desiring both the outer and the ground of being. You know, we are all that thing that um, B. Griffith says, that the, the, that the whole purpose of the absolute, the, the, the whole purpose of the intellect is to find the absolute truth. There's a desire from the inner world to find the absolute truth. And the outer, outer world is both desiring the inner and the ground of being. There's a, there's a Trinitarian experience, the three parts of the Godhead in erotic relationship with each other. So spirituality is a relationship and not a thing. And by the, by the way, that means that enlightenment is a relationship and it's not a thing. Enlightenment is a relationship. I'm going, I'm going to come back to that a bit later on. But enlightenment, I think it's quite interesting, is a relationship and not a thing. So spirituality is the cultivation of a sensitive and rewarding relationship with eternal truth and love. Eternal truth. Literally, eternal truth means permanent reliability. From an old advertising man, that's the sort of thing I'd like to say about the carpets that I'm selling. Permanent reliability! <laughs> but actually, that's what eternal truth means. It means permanent reliability. Because the, the entomology of truth is reliability. When you look at where it comes from, it means that which you can rely on. That's where, where the word truth comes from. So, 
something that is eternally true and is always able to be relied upon. And obviously what we're talking about there is absolute reality. And in this sense, the truth that can be relied upon, that absolute reality is the divine nature or the ground of all being. It is that which contains all things. That is the bedrock. You know, that's the thing about religions, you know, wherever you come from, whatever religion you're in, if you drill down into the human being, you're going to get to the same bedrock of consciousness. It's not going to be any different. Just because you live in Arabia or, or Russia or, or anywhere, doesn't mean when you drill into the bedrock of consciousness, you're going to find something different. Religions are just a cultural interpretation of an experience. You know, Islam is a cultural interpretation of what Muhammad experienced. Buddhism is a cultural interpretation of what Buddha experienced. Christianity is a cultural interpretation of what Jesus experienced. Judaism is a cultural interpretation of what Moses experienced. And so, really, if you go to that bedrock, that is the ultimate reliability, that ground of all being, the divine nature. So we're talking about a relationship, the cultivation of sensory rewarding relationship with the divine nature and with love. And love is the currency of the divine nature. Love is the currency. It is the method of exchange. If you're looking at how to interact, if you're looking at how to do business with the divine nature, the currency is love of the divine nature. Love, that definition of love, is giving with no expectation of return. Love is giving with no expectation of a return. And just as the universe and all it contains is given with no expectation of return, the universe is given with no expectation of return, and even our individual lives are given to us with no expectation of return, so the way we do business with the universe, or the ground of being, is to give ourselves with no expectation of return. We become love. And in becoming love, we become part of that loving nature that is the warp and weft of the universe. We become the very nature of the universe, that which is at the center of all creation. That's our spiritual relationship with eternal truth and love. So, spirituality is the cultivation of a sensitive and rewarding relationship with eternal truth and love. And that agrarian spiritual revolution is what Thich Nhat Hanh is saying is going to characterize the 21st century. Or it has to, if humanity is going to survive. I've always said that it's always interesting. You know, the planet's always going to be here. We don't have to, everyone's, we don't have to worry about the planet. No matter what we do, the planet will always adapt. The problem really will be the way that the planet adapts, that it may adapt in such a way that it is no longer habitable for humanity. So, it's really down to us as to whether or not we're willing to adapt to the planet. We need to develop a sensitive and rewarding relationship with the planet. A spirituality really is the only way to do that.
And really, you know, that's the importance of what we're doing here. You know, literally here, it's not about this building or about the institution that's this chapel. It's about the spiritual work that we're doing as a community alongside the spiritual work of other communities that we may not even have heard of in breaking down the barriers between people that religion and politics have formed. It is about breaking down the barriers between people that religion and politics have formed so that individuals can see this reality as it truly is. People often say that heaven is this world truly seen. So we're trying to break down those barriers. But it's interesting that there are probably many organizations just like us doing this work that we've never heard of. Just like most people have never heard of the Aspen Chapel. What we're doing here is breaking down barriers. That's why we were formed. And really, it's what we're about. Which is why... I have to say, which is why your individual spiritual life is so important, both to our community and here in the world. And you know, we have to make it a priority. We have to make it a priority. I've said before that sometimes I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm part of the entertainment industry up here. You know, it's like spiritual stand-up on a Sunday. You know, for people to sit and watch, you know, maybe it makes them feel a bit better. But really, it is a lot more than that. That lovely quote from Bill Shankly, the Liverpool City English football coach. He said, some people believe football is a matter of life and death. I'm very disappointed with this attitude. I can assure you, I can assure you that it's much, much more important than that. And I think the same about spirituality. What we're doing here is what will clear up the mess that the world finds itself in. Everything else is really moving deck chairs on the, on the, on the Titanic. You know, it has to be... The old Einstein thing, the problem is not going to be solved by the same consciousness that created the problem in the first place. And you just look out into the world and you can see it is all just warring factions. And it is only until we break down these barriers that have been created by religion and politics that we'll be able to make a difference. And we're not doing it alone. We're not doing this alone. But we are a part of it. And you are a part of what we do. Last week, I said that what we're here to do here, it's an act of service. And service is the end point of spirituality. If you don't think service is the end point of spirituality, then you need to get back on the meditation mat. I mean, because it is, we're, we're doing all this stuff, all these talks, studying the scriptures and Buddhism and all that. It's all to find your place to serve. It has no other reason for that. It's not just for our own edification. It is part of the driving force of evolution, of the ground of being drawing us towards itself. And as a community, we're part of that. And as individuals, we are part of that. 
And I'm urging you really to make it a priority. Do your practice on the cushion. Take the time to drive in and come to the chapel when we meet. Think about it. You know, we get together. There's a sense of support. And I think, you know, what we're doing, we're doing it on behalf of future generations. For us individually to clean up our acts, to prioritize our practice, to prioritize our participation in the community is the way we get things to change. One starfish at a time, as I was saying last week. Now you might think, you know, who am I to do this? I'm not particularly enlightened. My spiritual life is not strong enough to affect anything. And to that, to that I would want to assert that enlightenment is relative. Enlightenment is relative. Just as spirituality is a relationship, not a thing, so enlightenment is a relationship and not a thing. Your enlightenment is defined by your relationship with life. Your enlightenment is defined by your relationship with life. Enlightenment is just union with what is, yoga. It is just union with what is. And your enlightenment is you being true to what is in your life. And that means being true to the present moment, as I said in my last series. Your natural home, however it presents itself to you. It's not, enlightenment is not a particular feeling or experience or a way of being. It's just being true to what the universe presents to you in the present moment. I mean, you know, we look and say, you know, Buddha, that is enlightenment, you know. A peak experience. that We look at what we think enlightenment is and we just want to have those experiences in our, that other people have had in our own relationship, in our own lives. But that's trying to live other people's lives. Your enlightenment is particular to your relationship with your life. William Johnson, uh, the, the mystic, writes, he says, as we seek unity in diversity, so we realize that our ways are the same and different, and that our enlightenments are also the same and different. The great mystic Therese of Lisieux explains in her deceptively simple way the wonderful variety that, that exists, and this is still William Johnson, he's quoting Therese of Lisieux. He says, Therese of Lisieux says, he set before me in the book of nature. He set before me the book of nature, and I understand how all the flowers created by him are beautiful, how the splendor of the rose and the whiteness and the, of the lily do not lessen the perfume of the little violet or the delightful simplicity of the daisy. Understood that all the flowers, if they all wanted to be roses, nature 
would lose her springtime beauty and the fields would no longer be decked out with the little wild flowers. It's the same in the world of souls, our Lord's living garden. Johnson says, the universe is God's living garden and unity in diversity is the basic law. Even in the sublime mystical experiences, there is variety, and yet there is also unity, since all are pointing towards or sharing in the life of the same ultimate reality. So individually, we should not judge our own enlightenment as being inferior, that there is something more that we have to get that we are lacking because we compare ourselves to Gandhi or, or Jesus or Deepak. That's to judge ourselves like a lettuce. And as we don't blame the lettuce, we shouldn't blame ourselves for our supposed lack of enlightenment, but instead apply that cultivation. You look for reasons if it's not doing well, the lettuce. It may need fertilizer, more water, or less sun. You never blame the lettuce. Spirituality is the cultivation of a sensitive and rewarding relationship with eternal truth and love. And we should be focusing on that cultivation. Our, all our lives are completely unique. No one's lived your life. No one's had the experiences you've had, and no one has got the relationship with the universe that you've got. And the universe is bringing you unique experiences to deal with. They are your teachers. They are the things that you have to deal with. You don't have to deal with handing food out to refugees. What you have to deal with is whatever is going to come to you this afternoon and tomorrow morning and the morning after that. That's what you have to work on. And similarly, your enlightenment is the way that you deal with that is your ability to be in union with that. You know, the questions we should be asking is, you know, what will make me do better? More time on the meditation cushion? Some time on the meditation cushion. Not drinking so much. It is Lent after all. Being nicer to people, less dope, Getting off the sofa, and this is less, getting off the sofa, getting off the sofa and coming to church. But for the cultivation to work, it has to be a priority. If it's not a priority, you're just not going to do it. It has to be a priority. Like a diet. I mean, I'm big on diets. And I know that a diet only works if it is the number one priority. It has to be the most important thing. Otherwise, if you have an important business meeting and you want to feel better before the meeting, you'll think, well, I'll have that sandwich. The meeting's more important than my diet. And so you have the sandwich. When your diet's the most important, when you know you've got to get those pounds off, you think, no, it is the key thing. I'm not going to have that sandwich. You'll not follow through on your meditation practice if there are other priorities. I like, you know, that guru who said that he meditates for 30 minutes every day unless he's really busy and then he meditates for an hour. And I think that is really the attitude. 
You won't come to the chapel if your comfort is more important or if you prefer not to engage with others. You'll have that drink if feeling good is more important than the reality to which you're having to face up to. Lent is a time for sharpening up. And if we're going to make the 21st century the century of spirituality, then we all need to sharpen up. Um, I always like to give an opportunity just to give feedback if you want to. I, I do a bit of blurb just so you can get your courage up if you want to. I will produce the microphone in the moment. Or you can text me. My phone's here. I'll, I'll, uh, and the number's online if you want to say anything. Just another little quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, he says, enjoy being a Buddha. Becoming a Buddha is not so difficult. A Buddha is someone who is enlightened, capable of loving and forgiving. You know that at times you're like that. So enjoy being a Buddha when you sit. Allow the Buddha in you to sit. When you walk, allow the Buddha in you to walk. Enjoy your practice. If you don't become a Buddha, who will? If you don't become a Buddha, who will? And you know, I, I think this thing about relative enlightenment is, is really quite interesting. I mean, you, we know that some people can play the violin in a particular way fantastically. I can't. Some people, some people you know, good at being scientists or doctors or things like that. And it sort of begs the question, you know, what, what, is, what is enlightenment? And for me, you know, enlightenment is simply being fully in the present moment. It's simply being fully in the present moment. Now, I think most of you here right now are fully in the present moment. There is nowhere else to go. There isn't another experience to have other than this particular one here. And so therefore, Sandy's experience of being in the present moment right now is Sandy's enlightenment. That is it. And you know, your experience of being in the present moment right now is your experience of enlightenment. Now, our mind then goes in and says, no, I need to experience this or I need to experience that. No. You know, you are in the present moment and in being in the present moment is your ability to love and to forgive, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. And that's all it is, and it is completely relative. And, you know, you're in the present moment, and then, you know, downstairs, you'll again be in the present moment, and it'll be different, but in the present moment as well. That'll be your enlightenment, as you put the cheese sandwich in your mouth. That's, that's what, and you have the enlightenment of your, the cheese. That is all it is. And all this stuff, it's just about that, that old thing that the, the, the present moment is your true home. That is the nature of enlightenment. It's not something special. And, you know, each moment that we have, you know, we have to say it is a different moment and different moments have different experiences that go with it. And that's the enlightenment of that moment as you're running across the track. That is the enlightenment of that moment. And we read about other people who've had experiences. That's theirs. That's what they're having. Your experience has nothing to get. I'm doing myself out of a job here. There is nothing to get. It's just that. Okay, Does, would anybody, anybody, there's no need, and you know, I, I like a silence. Does anybody want to say anything at all? Bored.
I don't think we're living, I think our age is a post-fact world. And what truth is not what somebody continues to tell you and spins to you. Truth is not what Putin or anybody else tells you the truth is. Truth is what we tap into when we get the truth from the ether, from the meditation cushion, what comes to us, um, not what we're sold. Thank you. Yes, that is. That's great. My wife has texted me. <laughs> she says, don't forget to put the kettle on when you get... No, she doesn't. <laughs> she says, she says, it's so practical and personal. Any other, other idea of it... Oh, here we are, I've lost it. Any other, other idea of enlightenment is an ego trip. It's practical and personal. Any other idea of enlightenment is an ego trip. And that is... It, it, that's, you know, that's, that's quite interesting, the ego tripping us along. Did you want to say something? Yeah, please do. Yeah. I agree with what you were saying earlier, and I think the idea of spinning out this truth, emanating it out from our own source of that truth, our connection with that truth. And I find that breath helps me connect back to the present moment so that I'm actually aware of it. Say that again. You said that what, what helps? Uh, breath. Breath, yes. I, I'm, big, I'm a big breath person myself. I think that's so important. Anybody else want to say anything? Do you want to say anything at all? Um, what do you want to sing to us? What's your, what's sure. your, what's your final song? I was to what people were saying. Yeah. And, uh, I was just thinking like the, our uh, ultimate responsibility is to, to be yourself. Yes. To be who you are. Yeah. Because if you're not, then you're, um, that's the ego or whatever you were talking about. And if you are yourself that you can help in the most genuine way possible. So. Yeah. I also like that, that idea that you're not in the present moment. You are the present moment. When you say be who you are, it's not this skin bag and this brain. You are the present moment. If we look around, this is what defines us right now. We are the present moment. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening. If you feel moved to make a donation to the chapel, please go to aspenchapel.org. Thank you. And if you'd like to receive these podcasts regularly, subscribe to the Aspen Chapel through Apple, Google Play, YouTube, or any other outlet.